Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 29, and we're dealing with the pacification of the Khoisan in 1739. The Bushman War of that year had broken out, as we've heard, over repeated incursions into Khoi territory by settlers who had abused the hospitality of Captain Khal of the Great Namatwa, then shot him and eight of his family dead for good measure before driving off most of his cattle. That was the last straw for the Khoi, who rose up and began burning Dutch farms along the Ulifants River. Not to be confused with the Ulifants River in the far north of the country, Limpopo province. In fact, the Ulifants flows through the Kruger Park. No, our Ulifants is in the Cape. The Ulifants here rises in the Winterhoek Mountains near modern-day Ceres and flows northwestly through a deep valley that then widens downstream near Clan William and drains finally into the Atlantic Ocean. Remember last week we heard that the Frenchman and company deserter Estienne Barbier had been hiding out in this area, protected by various frontiers folk as he tried to instigate a settler uprising against the VOC. Ranged against him were men of the company, including the powerful owner of many farms, Kreivachen. The latter had been hunting Barbier and trying to pacify the Khoi at the same time, and when his commander returned to Stellenbosch at the end of May 1739, Barbier was still on the run. The governor had declared Babir enemy number one and placed the bounty on his head, dead or alive. The northern frontier zone was unstable, but the major military operation required to end the fighting would only begin in spring. In the meantime, the pressure on trying to maintain some kind of semblance of law and order fell on the shoulders of various felt corporals like Barant Luba. He was in charge of the Ulifants River and was instructed to make sure he did not antagonize the Hottentot Pokabas class or any of the other peaceful Khoi. The tension, though, was running high. Klaas had heard what the settlers had done to the other Khoi around the Picketback and across the Orange River, and he was jittery, and for good reason. So far, he had avoided being attacked by the settlers, but as they continued to seek an easy raiding victory, gathering heads of cattle, he believed it was only a matter of time before the frontiersmen would appear at his kraal. In the Langerflay area, for example, that was where the Van Sale family farmed until the start of the Bushman War, after which they had exiled themselves in the Cape. The VOC appointed Hendrik Krier as the Langerflay Feldkorporal, and his most pressing priority was recovering the firearms and ammunition looted by the marauding Khoisan. Until that was achieved, no farmer would be going home to his Ulfans River property. That fear was well-founded. Take the story of Hendrik Bjerkus, for example, a knecht of the ex-Humorat member Jakob Kluti. He'd been accosted by a large group of Khoisan near the company's drift on the Ulifants River, who had seized 24 head of cattle that Birkus had been minding, then opened fire on him. They missed, but Birkus headed to Stellenbosch to report the incident to Landros Lorenz and told him all the farms in the vicinity had been abandoned. The nearest was three days' journey south of the Ulifants River. Kreivachen then suggested a group of company soldiers be dispatched to the Ulifants, and they duly left in mid-July. The large commander would follow later on the 30th of August. Then company officials heard that Barbir had been spotted in the Rudersand district and Kunitz was dispatched to hunt him down. The problem was, Kunitz, as we've heard in the last episode, was hated by the frontier farmers and he had only two Feldwachters to support him. During the trip to the Rudersand, one of the Feldwachters ran away with the arms and provisions. When Kunitz eventually tracked him down, the man claimed he'd fallen off his horse while searching for the missing material. So Kunitz was in a bad place, and it was going to get worse. The Landros received patently false reports about Kunitz, 
and took the advice of those wanting to rid the area of any inspections. Thus Kunitz was fired and replaced by a man called Wittstock. Messages began filtering back to Stellenbosch that Babir had been spotted at the home of the widow of Joost Berfranachi, then at the home of the widow of Arnoldus Basson. Babir was French, after all, and appeared to be an excellent schmoozer of widows. Wittstock hurried to Basson's farmhouse, but there was no sign of Babir. The deserter was actually hiding under a bed in her house at the time, but his days were numbered. Wittstock left instructions for the local coy to spy on the farmhouses and report Barbier's movements. So by the 8th of August, Captain Tinus Butter led a force of 83 men, Dutch and Koi, as they marched into the Olifants Valley. The spring campaign was ahead of schedule with the Feldkorporals Andries Berger and Baron Glibber travelling as a small vanguard. Berger and 10 men had attacked the Khoisan near Hanukom's farm in the Langefle, which had been destroyed and they managed to kill 20 Khoisan and recovered a musket. One of Berger's men, a free black slave called Peter Schemontz, had been killed with a poison arrow in the follow-up action. Then Baron Lubbe's portion of the commando targeted the kraal of Captain Jager, killing 16 Khoi and seizing 87 head of an Irden and Engelbrecht's rustled cattle. A colonist fighting with Lubbe was hit by a poison arrow. It took him two days to die. As Boerter's large commando moved northwards, the Khoisan living in the Langefle struck once more, ambushing two wheat-laden wagons belonging to Jan Engelbrecht, and both Engelbrecht and Philip Meyer were shot dead in that clash. Two other colonists escaped, but the wagons, the wheat, 200 head of cattle, and 350 sheep were stolen. At that stage, the men of Boerter's commando were not a disciplined lot. They argued with him about payments, declaring that they should at least receive some of the treasure from the Khoisan instead of sending everything back to the VOC officers in the Cape. Boerter's answer was that the governor would decide what to do with the cattle. The men appeared pacified for the moment. The commander was now on the trail of the Khoisan, who'd shot Engelbrecht and Meyer and stolen the wagons and animals. Scouts found one of the wagons abandoned with a broken pole near Uyen Kral, which was the home of Khoi Captain Failbart, Captain Dirty Beard. A powerful detachment was sent forwards, and they attacked Failbart on the 17th of September, 1739, killing five Khoi and seizing another musket. They also found Khoisan women and children who had been taken prisoner, and they told the commander that there was another kraal in the vicinity. Boerter marched through the mountains the next day, and eventually his scouts spotted the kraal on the 19th of September. They set up a flanking maneuver and took the Khoi totally by surprise, killing 29, capturing six taking over 164 head of cattle and sheep. This commander was going to finish off the Khoi in the honour of Bockefeld. A few days later, on the 25th of September, Captain Yankee Klippiopel's kraal suffered a dawn surprise attack. Thirteen Khoi were killed and about the same number wounded. But one of the Khoi men who was fighting with the Dutch was also killed, while cavalry captain Hendrik Diebus was wounded in the head. The casualty figure was rising. The loot here, though, was significant. Five muskets were recovered. Iron pots, copper kettles, horses, and even a saddle. Boerter realized that he should leave a few animals with the Khoisan survivors, so made peace and handed over 48 cattle and 40 sheep. By the way, that area was named Urlochskluf, or War Ravine, and it's retained that name to this day. Boerter led his commando into the northern Bockefeld searching for Khoisan kraals, and he eventually found one on the far side of the Duin River in early October. He attacked, killing 17 Khoisan, wounding 22 more, while on the colonists' side, Hendrik Trinit was wounded. Boerter sued for peace and left a few of the livestock for the Khoisan, although he took 101 head of cattle and 120 sheep, as well as a musket found in one of the huts. 
Another kraal was discovered a short distance away, but the Khoisan there had run off, leaving some of their livestock, which the commander seized. By the 10th of October, the independent Khoisan existence in the Bockerfeld was no more. They had lived here for over 1,500 years, and in the space of one generation, the Dutch had destroyed their ancient way of life. Boerter was using a ruthless form of search and destroy, and the Khoi leadership realized that they were too scattered to oppose this form of organized warfare. The settlers now controlled the Onderbockerfeld and were entering the Huntam and the Rockerfeld. The Onderbockerfeld had become a stepping stone for more settlers to move further north into Namakwaland, and Boerter was eyeing this area for his next mission. But he had a problem. The members of his commander refused point-blank to consider riding onwards when he assembled them on the 11th of October, 1739. Two months of fighting and riding and the men had had enough. There was also the fact that the four-day journey into the Namakwaland would be carried out without water, and finally Boerter admitted defeat and agreed to return to Stellenbosch. The victorious commander arrived there on the 27th of October and redistributed the cattle and sheep to the original owners. Some went to the Khoikhoi commando members and the rest were sent to the company cattle post at Khronokluf. Everyone was well pleased, except, of course, for the Khoi and Estien Barbier. The Bokofelt, Duin and Olifant's river valleys were cleared of Khoisan resistance, but Boerter warned that the slimster uproar markers or the cleverest troublemakers had escaped. Swatboy and Titus had made it to the little Namakwa Khoi. The same was not true of Babir, however. He'd finally been captured in September in the Rudazant and was dragged back to the castle in Cape Town, where he was thrown into the Donkerhut, the dungeon where he languished for over two months. His end was near... I'll get to that in a moment. But first, we'll hear about another commander that was sent up the west coast, which decided the fate of the Langerflay Khoisan. Shortly after Boerter had left for the Bockerfeld, the Council of Policy received word that a ship had been wrecked off the Namakwaland coast with some survivors. That worried the Council, as they thought that weapons aboard the ship would fall into Khoi hands. The VOC believed they could kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, and the commander was dispatched under the leadership of Jan Kiblas, foreman of the company Skir, or Granary, and he headed up the coast to find the shipwreck. His commander comprised of 40 men and featured a mix of friendly Khoi fighters alongside the Dutch soldiers and some colonists. By the 2nd of October, Gibelas and his men had reached Meerhof's Castile, which was three days' journey south of the Little Namakwa. The Khoi in this area took off as soon as they saw the commander appear. Word had travelled about what the company commanders were up to. The Khoisan, seen retreating, though, were carrying muskets and unnerved Khibalas, who ordered his men to move forward cautiously. Lo and behold, upon calling for negotiations with this group of men, Khibalas spotted Swartboy wearing a powder horn and alongside him his son Titus, alias Shamant. The duplicitous Willem van Weyck was in this commando, and as we know by now, there was no love lost between van Weyck and Swartboy. Van Veik was in the initial raid of the Namakwa and had reneged on his promise to give some of the spoils of that raid to Swatboy. Van Veik approached Gibblas and informed him erroneously that he had reliable information that Swatboy and his son were planning an attack. What happened next was so brutal and extreme that I have hesitated, including some of the details, so be warned. Gibblas issued the inevitable order and his commando opened fire on the Khoi, killing around 40 of this little Namakwa clan. Captain Swartboy died in the fusillade, but his son Titus managed to make his escape, although slightly wounded. O.F. Mensel, a company soldier based in Cape Town and a member of this commando, wrote later that the firepower aimed at the Khoi on that day had been so heavy that 
The enemy fled, some of the women even abandoning their children in fright. Some of the soldiers proved that if they were free to do as they pleased, they would be wanton and savage, Mensel wrote. Some of the most brutal ones seized these small children by their legs and crashed their heads against the stones. The so-called purveyors of civilization were not done yet. Mensel continued, Others killed the wounded women and cut off their breasts, afterwards making themselves tobacco pouches from these as tokens of their heroism. I can't be sure if Mensel was being ironic, but he identified with this massacre and often boasted of it in later years. Gibralas failed to mention these incidents in his report, as you can imagine. They also failed to find any shipwreck, so turned and land to barter cattle with the little Namakwa. By this stage, these Koi were so petrified by the reports they'd received, they allowed themselves to part with 111 head of cattle. The little Namakwa were not massacred, and Gibralas and his cohorts then rode back to the Cape with their spoils. All the way from the Pickerbach to Namakwaran, from the west coast to the Bockerfeld, the Khoi were now a shattered people, dispersed and subjugated, as Nigel Penn writes in his book, The Forgotten Frontier. It was time to make an example of the bandit known as Estien Barbier. After nine weeks in the Donkerhut, he was dragged to court. On the 12th of November, 1739, the Frenchman was found guilty of seven serious charges, each of which was punishable by death, and these included insurrection and treason. And so Barbier was sentenced to be bound to a cross and then to have his right hand cut off. Thereafter he was to be decapitated and his body courted. His head and hand were to be raised on a stake and placed at the Rue de Zanskloef, where his friends lived, a clear warning that was both horrifying and terminal. The four quarters of his body were to be hung alongside four of the busiest roads of the Cape Colony until they weathered away. A large crowd duly gathered outside the castle in Cape Town on the 14th of November, 1739, where the sentence was carried out. His hand was chopped off, then his head. His entrails were removed and buried under the cross, and his body was courted, and the four bits were taken away and displayed alongside the busiest roads, as ordered. Mensel wrote, Such was the melancholy end of a turbulent fellow, which is a slight understatement even by the standards of the day. More than a hundred Khoi had died in the commando raids. Considering there were only a few thousand in the entire Northern Cape, that was a disaster for these people. The company decided not to arrest the frontier farmers who had protected Bardbeard for the last two years. The captured cattle were collected and sold to pay for the cost of the commandos. A proclamation was issued that suggested the Rudasan farmers had brought the Khoisan war upon themselves for harboring people like Barbier, and God had punished them, which is rather rich considering what violence the commando had meted out on the Khoisan. There was one last piece of business, and that was the fate of Titus alias Chamant, the son of Swatpoi. His final day of reckoning was approaching too. In December 1739, a frontier farmer by the name of Daniel Bockelenbach of the Langefle passed word back to Stenebosch that Titus had been spotted in his area. Titus had appeared on Bockelenbach's farm and ordered a shepherd to join him and other Khoisan who were going to keep this uprising going. Titus killed one of Bockelenbach's sheep and ate it, then went off to gather his men. He promised to return the next day, but the Khoi shepherd rushed off to Daniel Bockelenbach's house and related what had happened. 
Bockelenbach and one of his neighbours, Peter de Brain, decided they'd head to the rendezvous point in the Lagerfeld that night and try and catch Titus. This was going to be a very personal end for the son of Swampboy. Titus's brother, you see, worked for Bockelenbach, and the farmer thought he should set up an ambush. Titus's brother was told to head out at dawn, herding the cattle to a meeting place, so that Titus would see him and relax. And so it was then that the rebel Titus and a single companion emerged once they saw the cattle and Titus's brother. Instead, Bockelenbach and De Brain leapt out of the bush from where they were hiding and fired at Titus, who had his arm shot off by the violence of the musket ball. He must have been some kind of fighter, because despite losing his arm and bleeding terribly, the Khoisan, son of Swatboy, managed to elude the farmers running for the next half an hour through the felt before he weakened and fell down. Shortly afterwards, he breathed his last. And so the year-long Bushman War of 1739 ended. What of the repercussions? The Corps were now gone largely from the Bockefeld and Langefle, the Rudersand and most of the Ulifons Valley. The company feared, though, that settler resentment against them, which had fueled Barbier's rebellion, could resurface. So what happened next was actually contradictory an example of the chaos of history. The war had weakened the government's control over the colonists by destroying the Khoi resistance. White stock farmers were to be found across all suitable pastoral lands south of Namakwaland and west of the Bokerfeld. The Khoisan who did remain in the Bokerfeld, the Picketbach, the Sunfeld, the Ulifons and Duan River areas were a broken people. The crushed and dispirited leaders of these isolated folk were told to travel to Stellenbosch in September 1740 and these men were then marched to Cape Town. Here they formally made peace. It was Captains Vartobur, Antony Drachoner and Klein Yankee were issued with the copper-headed staff of office. Worse for the Khoi and soon the Isikosa and the Namakwa, the Trekboers now had a license to do almost what they wanted. They were emboldened by the Khoisan destruction and expanded quickly into the interior to satisfy their hunger for land. While avoiding the arid Knesflachta to the north, the Trekboers headed northeastly into the Onderbokkefeld, the Hantam and the Rochefeld. This was to have dire consequences for South Africa. From this state onwards, there was to be a decrease in state control of the frontier zones. The VOC no longer wanted to regulate the relationship between the settlers and the Khoisan, and from now on, the influence of the company would be expressed via the frontiersmen and their commanders. Next episode, we'll pick up on the story of the 1740s through the next decade or two across southern Africa. Things were picking up speed, as you'll hear. So, please rate the podcast on your platform of choice. You can also send me a message via Twitter, at Des Latham, or through my website, DesmondLatham.com or DesmondLatham.blog Until next, tot ziens.